you're syncing up and tuning in to the Lending Link Podcast, powered by GDS Link, where the modern-day lender can dive deeper into the future of data, decisioning, and credit risk solutions. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Rich Alterman, and on this episode of the Lending Link, we're sitting down with Kareem Saleh, CEO and co-founder of Fairplay.ai which helps lenders identify potential disparities in their decisioning systems, provides them with options to increase profitability and fairness, and help prove to consumers, regulators, and the public that they are taking strong steps to be fair. Kareem is a Forbes contributor and a frequent speaker on the application of artificial intelligence in the financial services sector. He's a graduate of Georgetown University Law Center and an honors graduate of the University of Chicago. In this episode, Kareem and I are going to spend some time talking about fairness in lending, disparate impact and treatment, and how Fair Play's offering can benefit lenders and consumers and so much more. But first, please head over to GDS Link's LinkedIn and Twitter pages at GDS Link and hit those like and follow buttons. And please be sure to subscribe to the Lending Link on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcast. All right, now let's get synced with GDS Link. Good afternoon, Kareem, and welcome. Thanks for having me, Rich. It's great to be here. I'm a longtime admirer of GDS Link. Well, we appreciate that. And thanks for joining me today. So, Kareem, uh, you co-founded Fairplay in 2020. Can you share a bit on your background before starting Fairplay? Yeah. My parents are immigrants from Egypt, and like so many immigrants to America, they needed a $12,000 loan to start a small business and couldn't get one. And my mom worked so hard to save up that money. She just about nearly died in the process. And so I have been interested in this question of underwriting inherently hard to score borrowers my whole life. Thin files, no files, underwriting under conditions of deep uncertainty. I got started doing that work in kind of frontier emerging markets. So sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, Eastern Europe, the Caribbean. And yeah, for the last decade, I've been doing it at venture-backed startups. Yeah, actually, on our uh, one of our prior podcasts, when we were talking to Dan Kwan, he had a little similar story, I think, about coming to this country. And I know that his company, uh, Navicot Ventures, has invested in Fair Play. So uh, nice to have you on uh, today after we had talked about you a little bit a couple of weeks back. So can you share with uh, our listeners today any special interest you have outside of the office? I know uh, you work pretty hard, but I'm, I'm sure you take some time off for yourself and your family. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, I'm i a boxer uh, and a poker player, and I find that both of those sharpen my concentration and keep me from looking at computer screens. But during the pandemic, I got kind of enamored with the lifestyle practices of Dutch extreme athlete called Wim Hof. He's known to many as the Iceman. And the Wim Hof method basically holds that regular breath work and cold plunges make you happier, healthier, stronger. And by learning how to breathe and meditate through extremely cold conditions, uh, you can learn to better control your nervous system, including your innate fight or flight mechanism and relieve stress. Oh, neat. So uh, have you taken the plunge? I swim almost every morning in the Pacific Ocean right off Venice Beach after I box. I find it improves my focus, reduces my stress. It's a nice way to start the day. Any item on your bucket list to really uh, test yourself some w- with some real, real cold water? I can go about 45 minutes, uh, but the really hardcore people can go like two hours. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's get down to business. 
So on your website, you indicate that you founded Fair Play, and I quote, in response to calls for greater actions against systematic bias, unquote, with part of your mission to help any business that uses an algorithm to make high-stake decisions about people's lives. You dubbed your firm the world's first fairness-as-a-service company. This is quite a tall, tall order and, and noble effort and a strong claim. Obviously, with your background, as you described to us, I now understand better where some of that's coming from. Why don't you give us a little more on the backdrop for this this call you have? Yeah, well, so I was in the U.S. government in the early part of kind of 2012 through 2015, 16. And a big part of my responsibility there was underwriting development-friendly projects in countries that were foreign policy priorities. So, you know, think about solar and wind farms in sub-Saharan Africa and small and medium-sized enterprise lending facilities for uh, entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia. And what kind of shocked me was how rudimentary the underwriting was for those loans. And so when I was leaving the government, I went in search of people who were kind of taking a more modern approach uh, to underwriting. And it was around that time that I uh, met my co-founder, a guy named John Merrill, who'd been at Google for a bunch of years and at Microsoft before that. And, um, you know, we started like making a point of reading academic papers that would come out from places like Stanford and Carnegie Mellon, looking for new mathematical techniques that would give us an underwriting edge. And a few years ago, probably four or five years ago, we started hearing more and more about algorithmic fairness techniques, which, you know, have as their express purpose doing a better job of assessing the risk of populations that are not well represented in the data or populations whose data is messy, missing, or wrong. And so we happen to have the good fortune of working with a big mortgage originator at the time, and they were kind of willing to let us experiment and we ran some experiments applying one of these algorithmic fairness techniques to their consumer loan underwriting model. And the results were like jaw dropping. It was like mm -hmm. you could increase your approval rate by of black applicants by like 10% with no corresponding increase in risk. And so when we saw that, we had a light bulb moment. We were like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe there, this is going to be a promising area that can both allow folks to have an underwriting edge and also do more good in the world. And then not too long after that, the country observed the murder of George Floyd. And there were protests sweeping across the country. And I think many Americans asked themselves at that time, you know, what can I do in my area of influence that might make a difference and might help remediate some of the systemic inequities that we know existed in financial services. And so, you know, for me and John, that was underwriting. And we thought that, like, maybe we could convince more lenders to use AI fairness techniques as second look underwriting tools, basically doing a check to make sure you didn't decline anybody whose riskiness might have been overstated. And if you get that right, you find more good loans and you uh, have a fairness benefit. In that respect, you know, we know the CFPB uh, had pushed out a survey several years ago to look at the use of alternative data 
uh, in the credit underwriting as well as machine learning. Were you and John, you know, involved with any of those responses? Uh, did you have any conversations with the CFPB that might be of interest to the audience today? We spend a, a lot of time with the federal financial regulators and state regulators too, and, and we're fortunate to have folks like David Silberman, who was the longtime number two at the CFPB on our advisory board, as well as folks like Manny Alvarez, who spent a bunch of years in industry at a firm, but was also the uh, you know, fi- uh, commissioner of financial institutions in California. So I'll tell you, you know, the deputy comptroller at the OCC gave a speech a few weeks ago in which she said that the federal financial regulators, the prudential regulators are laser focused on fair lending. And I think um, every day brings news of some new AI system that's gone off the rails. One of the things that the financial services industry has to contend with is a growing perception in the zeitgeist that left to their own devices, algorithmic systems will pose a threat either to the consumers or the safety and soundness of the financial system. You and John both worked over at Zest for many years as you made a decision to move away and start Fair Play. Any uh, key observations that you know you noted during your career there that maybe was a catalyst for uh, you know your move? Well, I tell you, we were among the first people to use complex machine learning algorithms of the sort that Google uses in search in consumer loan underwriting. And what we found was that machine learning algorithms are capable of learning the wrong things. Now, let me just give you one example, right? So when we first started out, we were lending for our own balance sheet and we didn't have much data because it was we had a cold start problem. Uh, and so we went out and we acquired some data. And we built an underwriting model. And of course, the target of the underwriting model is predict where my defaults will be the lowest. Train the model. The model comes back and says, hey, you should go make a bunch of loans in Arkansas. Now, it just so happens that my co-founder, John, is from Arkansas. And so he happened to know that the regulatory regime in Arkansas was extremely hostile to these kinds of loans. Okay. So... We go and we start digging into the data. Why is the model telling us to make loans in Arkansas? Well, we told the model to predict default. The data set didn't have any loans from Arkansas in it, which meant that the data set didn't have any defaults from Arkansas in it. And the algorithm concluded that that meant that loans never went bad in Arkansas. (laughs) Right? And so that was a big aha moment in the sense that like, these systems have to be carefully governed or they will run your business off a cliff and potentially do great harm to consumers in the process. The great news is if you harness them for the right purposes, it's like, you know, going from a Camry to a Formula One car. So uh, you haven't been around that long. Can you kind of share what the reaction of the market's been, what the adoption rate has been? Clearly, we're going to talk a lot about financial services today. So let's kind of focus on that for the meantime. 
Yeah, we've been extremely fortunate to experience very fast adoption, including by the fintech industry, uh, who I think appreciates both uses more complex models and appreciates a technology solution to a problem, a compliance problem that, you know, uh, many in the industry have historically thrown kind of bodies and consultants at. So we're fortunate to work with some of the biggest names in fintech, like Figure Technologies and Octane and Happy Money and many others who want economic, reputational and regulatory benefits that arise from turning fairness into a competitive advantage. So uh, in the lending world, your solution is designed to identify disparities uh, in their decisioning systems and provide them with options to increase profitability. And as we said earlier, fairness, improving to customer regulators and the public that they have taken strong steps to be fair. So let's kind of break this down. When you reference disparities, is it fair to tie this to discussions around disparate impact, disparate treatment, redlining, predatory lending, kind of like where's a real focus? Yeah, I think those are certainly the common ways that bias manifests in lending. You can broadly think of how to assess bias in lending in one of two ways. Did you treat someone differently because of who they are? Or did you do something that appeared to be objective, but ended up in worse outcomes for one group? Yeah, it's interesting. I could think back to conversations you'd have with lenders that did in-person lending in the short-term lending world, particular people walking in a store and you would always talk about how part of the value of a custom model was that you would eliminate some of that bias that is there, whether we believe it's there or not depending on who's standing in front of me that I'm looking at. So would you say that models really have not come as far as they can to continue to eliminate that bias? And that's really the value proposition or one of the value propositions that you're really trying to bring here to the lending community. That's right. I think that, you know, there's been a lot of technology advancement that permits you to understand how certain subpopulations that might differ from the kind of customer that you're used to seeing or that's well represented in the data might perform. And so what's cool about uh, these new developments is that they allow you to train models to be more sensitive to populations who might exhibit credit behaviors and credit characteristics that differ from those you are used to encountering. And it turns out that if you can find enough of those subpopulations and reach them with products that are appropriate, you can make money and increase access to credit. I was looking at some of the reports uh, on your website you know, one of the things I came across was this key measure that you use uh, called adverse impact ratio or AIR and something called the related four-fifth rule for 80%. Can you share at a high level how this is calculated and how it's leveraged in your evaluations? And in general, you know, how does your solution, you know, work? Please, uh, you know, take some time, walk us through how you analyze algorithms for bias and uh, how you optimize algorithms for fairness. Yeah, so the adverse impact ratio is a measure of fairness that courts and regulators commonly use to understand if one group experiences a positive outcome, like approval for a loan, at a lower rate than another group, right? Mm -hmm. So like, at what rate are women approved for mortgages relative to men? Regulators have never specified 
what threshold they consider to be fair. So like okay. at, what, at what rate do you have to approve women relative to men to be quote unquote fair? Employment context, courts have articulated something called the four-fifths rule, which okay. basically says if a protected group experiences the positive outcome, like approval for a job, at at least four-fifths, at least 80% the rate of the control group, we will not necessarily find a disparity that justifies regulatory sanction. Below four-fifths, we start to consider that unfair, and we're going to start inquiring into why is that disparity there? Is it there for a legitimate reason? The cool thing is that these new algorithmic fairness techniques I've been telling you about can expressly be programmed to try to minimize that error, that adverse impact ratio. And that's a, actually a technology innovation that we took from the world of self-driving cars. Mm. When John and I were thinking about launching our second look solution powered by AI fairness techniques, we looked at the world of self-driving cars. And if you think about it, all algorithms must be given a target you know, an objective that they seek relentlessly to maximize. So right. for example, the Facebook algorithm has its as its target or as its objective, keeping the user engaged. And mm -hmm. so the Facebook algorithm is going to do whatever it has to do to keep a user engaged, even if the stuff that it's showing them to keep them engaged is bad for their mental health or right. bad for society, right? And you have this problem in self-driving cars too. If you told a self-driving car that its mere objective was to get you from point A to point B, it might do that while driving the wrong way down a one-way street, right. driving uh, on the sidewalk, posing mayhem to pedestrians. Right. So what does Tesla do to make sure that the neural network that powers its self-driving cars doesn't behave that way. It has to give it the algorithm two targets, right? Get the passenger from point A to point B while mm -hmm. also respecting the rules of the road. We drew from that playbook at Fair Play to create algorithms which say, hey, predict who's going to default, but while also minimizing disparities for protected groups. And the cool thing is it works really, really well. We just got done uh, doing a second look engagement for a big installment lender that found that they were going to be able to increase their approval rates by 20% and increase their fairness to Black applicants by something like 35%. For that particular lender, that meant something like an original $150 million of credit originated and an additional $12 million in profit. So these techniques have the opportunity to yield an economic reward as well as regulatory and reputational rewards. Wow, that's quite a lift. It's kind of we talked we've talked in prior podcasts about the benefit of open banking data, right? And how it's bringing more opportunity to people where their credit file may not be truly representative of their capability. So it's interesting to, to hear that. So as I understand it, when you guys are building these models or the AI machine is building these models that you're identifying variables or attributes for the protected classes that need to be or should be looked at 
that are not necessarily in your initial model. So when you're working with lenders, do you then incorporate those new variables into the existing model? Or do you somehow try to have a segmentation tree that is splitting the populations and only applying those other attributes to the protected classes? Yeah, great question. So actually, we always start by using the data that the lender or our partner already has. We just do a very specific thing which lenders have been conditioned their whole lives never to do, which is we take consideration of the protected attribute into account when we're setting the weights on the variables. So we expose the models to the distribution of protected class applicants during model training so that the weights on those models are set to be more sensitive to those groups, but in a way that still preserves their predictive power. And let me give you an example of what I mean by that. So like a variable that we often encounter in underwriting models is consistency of employment. And if you think about it, consistency of employment is a perfectly reasonable credit variable on which to assess the credit worthiness of a man. But all things being equal, consistency of employment will necessarily cause a disparity for women between the ages of 18 and 45 right. who take time out of the workforce to start a family. So maybe what you ought to do is tell the model, hey, you will sometimes encounter a population of people in the world called women. Women will sometimes in exhibit inconsistent employment. And before you decline somebody for inconsistent employment, maybe you better do a check on all the other variables to see if they resemble good applicants on dimensions that you didn't heavily consider. And so what we find is that by using these algorithmic fairness techniques as a second look on your declines allows you to find something like 25 to 33% of opportunities you may have overlooked because the riskiness of certain populations is overstated by conventional data sources and conventional underwriting techniques. When lenders are are using or looking at your, your system, especially when we think about banks in particular, is there an opportunity or have they discussed your offering providing some opportunity to meet some of the requirements they have under the Community Reinvestment Act? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of interest on the part of institutions who have ESG requirements, want to meet their obligations under the Community Reinvestment Act, want to establish special purpose credit programs designed to increase positive outcomes for historically disadvantaged groups. I think fairness has been a part of the regulatory and operational regime in financial services for 35 years. You know, fairness 1.0 was kind of like, call in the lawyers to write clever statistical justifications <laughs> for disparities. Fairness 2.0, where we're headed as an industry is, we take fairness seriously, we inquire into it rigorously, and when we find issues, we commit ourselves with seriousness of purpose to solving them because there are increasingly good tools to do, for doing so, and it makes us more money in addition to allowing us to better serve our customers and the communities that that you know that form our customer base. So, uh, you know, throughout my career, Kareem, I've been in roles where, you know, worked with different scorecard vendors and. Uh, Actually, at one job, I would get the three-inch binder that came over from the scorecard vendors that had all the attributes. And, uh, you know, I don't recall ever seeing anything that talked about bias or just discriminatory practices. Even today, would you say that when lenders are building models, 
whether they're building it themselves or they're contracting with third parties, is disparate impact, disparate treatment, are those things really even being considered by those lenders as part of that initial model build? Or is it really something more on the back end when compliance tends to get involved? Yeah, historically, fair lending compliance has been done as a look back. You mm -hmm. put a model in a production and a year later, you go back and ask, well, how did it do? But I think as these algorithms are taking over more and more high stakes decision in the customer journey, including the marketing decision and the fraud decisions, there is increasingly concern that the use of complex machine learning systems upwards in the funnel could distort fairness, could create bias in ways that you might not necessarily perceive if you're only focused on the underwriting and pricing decisions. And so as a result of that, you're starting to see regulators and examiners and folks who take AI governance uh, and AI ethics seriously focus on debiasing these models on the front end before you put them into production. You know, if you understand that these systems have a tendency towards bias, not because the people who make them have, are bad people, it's because mm -hmm. the bias is embedded in the data, then the reasonable expectation is that you're going to inquire into that bias, see if you can quantify it, and see if you can introduce alternatives to make it fairer. The good news is the tools are in increasing existence to allow you to do that. And uh, there can be great economic benefits to doing it. So kind of walk us through your sales process. When lenders are considering other data bureaus, they always try to do retro studies, right? Take a look at their prior population and see how they behave. Are you taking that same approach? I think you talked about a look back. So kind of walk us through, you know, what you're doing to, to get opportunities of yours to kind of bite. Yeah, what we do is we say, hey, you know your core customer better than we do. What we specialize in are these populations that are far from the distribution of applicants that you normally encounter. And we do a very specific thing that you don't, which is we train our models with consciousness of those subpopulations, which allows our models to be more sensitive to those groups. And so keep your whatever your incumbent underwriting model is in place because you understand your core customer better than we do but route all the declines from that model to a second look model that's been tuned to be fairer to populations that are not well represented in the data and in so doing see if you can find more good applicants that also allow you to make investments in these communities that really need it so could you envision someday, you know, we think about uh, in the uh, electronics world, we think about the UL stamp of approval, right? Underwriters Laboratory. Is one of your goals that there'll be a uh, fairplay.ai logo on, on websites to let people know that they use you and, and that they're more fair than others? Fair play inside? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We are uh, in the process of rolling out a kind of, you know, good housekeeping seal of approval for algorithmic fairness. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that I know that you were recently uh, featured in a Forbes magazine article about bias and mortgage lending without getting into, you know, long discussion, any key findings that you'd think the audience would be interested in from that that article? 
Yeah, look, I mean, uh, there were some really sobering findings, right? So the mortgage market has gotten uh, fairer to women over the last 30 years. It's gotten, it's about stayed the same for Asian Americans, which is to say pretty good. Hispanic Americans do a little better than they did 30 years ago. But the black, the fairness of the mortgage market to black home buyers basically hasn't budged in 30 years. And for Native American home buyers, the mortgage market fairness has decreased by about 15 percentage points. So in 1990, Native Americans used to be approved at 95% the rate of white Americans. Today, they're approved around 80% the rate of white Americans. So we have made a lot of progress in some areas in financial services, but we have had a stubborn resistance mm -hmm. to progress in other areas of financial services. And our message to the world is, hey, look, for 30 years, we tried to achieve fairness through blindness. This idea that we could just rely on variables that were neutral and objective predictors of credit risk. But it's probably time for us to admit that neutrality is a fallacy. There's bias in the data. And maybe that prohibition on using protected status in underwriting has outlived its usefulness. Maybe it's time for fairness through awareness, where we tune the models to be sensitive to these historically disadvantaged groups, recognizing that the data about them doesn't necessarily represent their true creditworthiness. Your mission talks about helping any business use these algorithms to you know, help in the area of fairness. You mentioned hiring. I think you just you mentioned insurance. Are there other industries that you look at that you think also would fall under that umbrella? Yeah, we think there are many domains which require decisions to be made fairly. Financial services and insurance are obviously two, but healthcare decisions have to be made fairly. So if you're going to rely on an algorithmic system to make a clinical diagnosis about a patient, you have to prove that that algorithmic decisioning system has been properly validated and isn't discriminating. The employment sector has many decisions that must be made fairly. Government services uh, like benefits administration and predictive policing, all of those decisions have to be made fairly. And then increasingly, the evidence suggests that even a low stakes decision, if you make it a bunch of times, can add up to having a high stakes impact. So, for example, you know, yeah. if you think go back to the Facebook example, maybe showing a young girl an image you know, a kind of negative body image on Instagram one time, you might say that's a low stakes harm, but you sh repeatedly show negative body images to a young woman, that kind of low stakes decision ends up having a high stakes impact. So we think that just as Google built search infrastructure for the internet and Stripe built payments infrastructure for the internet, so too will we need to build fairness infrastructure for the internet to de-bias digital decisions in real time. Well, maybe someday you'll be doing work with uh, Match.com. They look at fairness in their <laughs> algorithms, right? Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're dating, yeah. Before we uh, wrap up, I'll, I'll throw one personal question at you. With the holidays coming up, what's your favorite holiday movie and what does it say about you? Oh, Die Hard and that I'm old school. <laughs> <laughs> Die are you? That's so funny. My wife keeps saying it's a Christmas movie and other people say it's not a Christmas movie. <laughs> I don't know why I perceive it to be a Christmas movie. At one point, I think well, it is. Right. At right. one point, he wears a Santa hat, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, no, it definitely <laughs> is. Yeah, it definitely is. Well, like I really appreciate your uh, taking time to chat with us today. I wish you and uh, John much success in your new venture. You're early in your uh, evolution, and I'm sure we're going to see a lot of good things coming out of your company. Once again, this is Rich Altman, and we've been syncing up with Kareem Saleh, co-founder and CEO of Fairplay. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and we'll stay connected with GDS Links, the lending link to listen to future podcasts and catch up on ones you missed.